All right. This is fine because uh, we only have uh, chapter 10 of Esther left, and that's what, like, four, three verses. Um, what I want to do is uh, these last uh, two Sundays in here, talking about Esther, <clears throat> especially the next Sunday, I want to kind of open it up and talk about, uh, make, make some connections. Uh, I like to, when we study Old Testament, Old Testament is obviously important, you know, uh, to have a balanced uh, understanding of the Bible. You can't just look at the New Testament. You also have to understand where the New Testament comes from, and that's the Old Testament. So uh, something that I like to do um, when, we're, when I'm studying the Old Testament is I like to make connections to the New Testament, see what applies to us, see how that looks like, more in the sense of the New Testament after the cross. Um, and it's easier for us to kind of see the connections and the applications of the lessons in the Old Testament when we connect it to the New Testament. So we're going to do that more next week, but, you know, we've got to finish Esther first, and we don't have a lot of time. So uh, since it's been a little bit, let's read uh, chapter 9 and 10 just to kind of catch us back to... Um, and since we have some people who weren't here last week, um, I hope that uh, you know you're familiar with the story of Esther. Maybe you haven't read it, you know, as much, but I'm sure everyone is at least somewhat familiar about the story. Um, so hopefully, you know, this isn't like jumping into, uh, you know, in the middle of it. But chapter nine. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps of the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and, at, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed uh, Parshandatha, uh, <laughs> and Dalphon and Esphatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and the Parmashta, and Ersai, and Eridai, and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, and the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, And Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hung hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. 
The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of a month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that day a feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural, rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts to, and food of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and on the 15th day, also the 15th day of the same, year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned from them, or turned for them, from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagai, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, and had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. And that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called this, these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation." in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the condemnation or commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, sorry, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts or fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and mind and a full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitudes, multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. It's kind of funny that um, I didn't, plan on this at all, actually. It's kind of funny that we uh, looked at the story of Joseph and, and how it turned out, right, the result of these uh, two separate, completely separate uh, people's um, journey in life is very similar, right? 
Um, they are thrown into turmoil and they are faced with challenges that they had not asked for, that they did not deserve. And uh, throughout all of that, they uh, make their choices, right? They live their lives um, that is honest and that is the best to their abilities and, and before God, right? Representing their identity in God, right? And God opens doors for them throughout because of this. And they walk through them. And, and they reap the benefits that, that God has allowed them to have. And in the story of Esther, much like that of Joseph, um, they are brought down low, right? Um, now, Mordecai and Esther, they were never slaves or you know, put into you know, servanthood or anything like that, like uh, Joseph was. So Joseph's case was a little more extreme, I would say, than uh, that of Esther and Mordecai. But nevertheless, they were facing genocide, right? They were facing something terrible that, that were going to happen to that was going to happen to their people, including themselves. Um, just because Esther was queen did not exempt her from right this terrible fate. So they went through trouble and they found uh, turmoil and and challenge in their lives, but continued throughout the story of Esther as we have looked at these various chapters the narrative of Esther, they kept their faith. Right? They, they kept their identity in God, right? Their identity as a Jew, not just in the sense of ethnicity, but in the sense of religious identity, spiritual identity, uh, identity, that is, identity that is defined by their covenant with a, a God, right? The God, right? That's what helped them through these times. It was not because of their own doing, right? The things that happened in Esther, and we talked about how Esther's narrative is very much defined. It's riddled with iron, ironic reversals, right? Irony, um, lots of, you think something's going to happen a certain way, and then boom, right? It almost feels like <laughs> deus ex machina. Uh, but it's what other people would, and, and the, the scholars of uh, the world would interpret as this is just people trying to, you know, this is a false uh, story, um, trying to um, just give more authority, credit to the development of the Feast of Purim, which, by the way, as you know, is not ordained, is one, it's not one of the big feasts that uh, was originally ordained by God, right? So a lot of the theories say that Esther was just basically written as an origin story for the Purim. We talked about this in the first Sunday we were here. But instead of looking at Esther like that, if you look at Esther in the sense of, am I ringing? <laughs> if you look at Esther in the sense of, um, how do we find God in, in, a, in a world and in circumstances that we, it's very difficult to find God. And it's telling, I think, and we have talked about this too, that the author of Esther does not use God's name. Not once do the characters of the book of Esther utter the name of God. Not once. God is absent in this book, as we have discussed before. But we know that as we read such a book where God is absent, it's even more crucial for us to find God in those behind the scenes, right? 
between the lines in the identity that Esther and Mordecai found themselves in, the identity of the Jews. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a Jew, right? It means they have a covenant with the Lord. It means that they, they live according to the laws and the statutes that, that God has given them, right? That's their identity. Even if they weren't perfect, right, in keeping them, even if they were flawed people, and we know that they are and that they were, even according to the narratives of Esther, even if that was the case, their identity was with God, right? And, and the success that they saw, right, and, and the, they were basically six feet under by Haman's plan, but with these ironic reversals, things that just could not have been planned or, or calculated into, things that Esther and, and Mordecai could not have possibly wrestled into existence, these things that we look at as coincidences, chance, happenstance, right? We can see God in those things. We can see God working in the background of their lives. And the choices that they make, the people that they were, all of those things weave into who God is, what God does, and what God did for them. And what God did for the the people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people at large through Esther and Mordecai. I think in chapter 10, it's very important for us to notice. It is a short chapter, and it's not, I mean, there's not much to it. Uh, towards the end of the book, end of uh, chapter 9 and, and chapter 10, it, it's really just kind of like numbers, and it's easy for us to, you know, kind of drift and, and think, oh, this is not that important. This is not the meat of the story. It's just telling us to, it's kind of like the epilogue, just giving us some details and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's easy for us to think like that, but I think it's very important that, that for us to remember that all of these words are intentional. They have been curated by the author and have been put into this narrative for a reason. In chapter 10, I think it's important for us to notice, well, one, obviously, that the fact that Mordecai has risen in power, right, to a, a great height of power, he is, much like Joseph's story, he is only second to uh, King Ahasuerus, right? He is powerful. And again, uh, this kind of, this plays into the fact that Esther is structured in a mirror, mirroring kind of uh, structure where the things that we saw in the beginning are mirrored in a different way uh, towards the end, right? Uh, we saw that uh, King Ahasuerus was uh, of, of great power, and we read of that in chapter one, right? How he flexed his his power and his authority to all the people in his in his citadel and all all around his provinces, his entire empire. You remember that the feasts, the free food that he gave out, all of that, the the pomp and circumstance. Remember that? Well, now we see a comparison to that kind of power, that power that was just all about flexing and just uh, about the self how powerful I am, how good I am. Compare that kind of power that King Ahasuerus had to the power that Mordecai rises into. What does Mordecai do? What, how is Mordecai described here? What kind of ruler is he? He was a righteous man, right? Take a look at uh, verse three, the last verse of the book. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. Of course, you know, he's still not the king, obviously. 
King Ahasuerus is still in power. But notice what the book says. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought what? The welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I think it's interesting that of all the qualities, of all the things that, that they could have listed, that they could have uh, chose to record for Mordecai to be remembered, it was not his power, it was not his authority, it was not all the great things that he did, and I'm sure he did great things, but the very last detail about Mordecai that the author wants you to remember is that he was a righteous man, that people loved him and followed him and looked up to him because he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's God's justice. Yes. So we, that's another way uh, Esther mirrors, right? Um, not only with King Ahasuerus, but also especially with Haman. Haman rises to power, and immediately as he gets his taste for power, what does he do? He goes out of whack. He starts abusing his power immediately, right? Instead of worrying about how am I going to use this power for the good of the people as a person who is in power for the purpose of serving the multitude, Instead of worrying about that, what does he worry about? What does he become obsessed with as soon as he comes into power? Well, uh, yeah, he, he certainly does that. He gets drunk with the king. <laughs> he gets obsessed with hate. What's the first thing that he does with his power? Is he focuses on Mordecai, someone who will not bow down to him. And he becomes obsessed. And it's like Stephen said, it's a stark contrast between uh, what Mordecai is at the end of Esther. What does Mordecai do? Uh, so Mordecai and Esther, obviously Esther is all, the queen and she has some uh, more authority and power and position in terms of you know political stuff than Mordecai in, in that sense. But uh, as soon as uh, the king gives Mordecai his signet ring, kind of, you know, representing the passing on of, you know, this power that Haman once had to Mordecai. What do they do with that power? They fix Haman's mistakes. Right? They draft that second edict that will go out and allow the Jews of all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to defend themselves against people who mean harm to them, to innocent people, right? It's a stark contrast. And, and details like this should not be overlooked because it, it, gives, it, it gives more oomph to the, the message of Esther. What is Esther really trying to teach us? Is it just about notice God in in your circumstances where you may not be able to see him as well. Yes, that is the main message. 
But practically speaking, what is Esther calling us to do? What is it motivating us to do in our own walks of life, in our own circumstances? Follow God's law, right? To keep God's commandments? What did you say? To put, our, yeah, to put our faith in God in whatever choices that we make, whatever we do in our lives, yes? Okay, remember that God, God will provide for his people. What is the circum, what, what's the, uh, I'm, I'm losing, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm having a brain fart moment. <laughs> uh, but what, what's the, con- sorry, condition, there we go. What's the condition for that? Obviously, God loves us and God, you know, wants the best for us. But all throughout the Bible, I mean, most of us, I'm sure most, if not all of us, are, are baptized Christians. We are churchgoers. You know, we know the Bible, at least, to a, 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 at least to a basic extent. What does God want from us? Right? God promises us these things. He's like, he will provide that. He will be there for us. Even when we can't see him, even when we can't notice what he does, God is working, and he promises that. What is the condition to that access? Right. I mean, what, what's, what's the one thing that Moses has drilled into the people of Israel all throughout, even from exiting uh, Egypt and into, wander, into the wander, uh, wilderness wandering for all those years, and even right before, in Deuteronomy, right before going into, stepping foot into the promised land. What does is, what is Moses warn Israel of every single turn and every single step of the way? Remember your God. Remember your Lord. Yes. Why? Why does he do that? Why does literally all of the Bible seem to be screaming at the audience, at the readers, remember God. It's because it's, it's that important. That is the condition, right? Now, obviously, we have to take it a step further. There are more to be done than just remembering God. Oh, I remember that God exists. That's not enough, right? We also have to live according to that truth. What does our life look like according to the fact that God exists, yes? Exactly. And then, I don't know why this mic is acting up. And then, that's right, you, you go, you take it even a step further, and we think about circumstances in life when we are not at peace, when things are going wrong, when the world seems to be against us, when the walls are closing in, when we are overwhelmed. Even then, the commandment does not change. We are still called to remember our Lord, remember our God. And to live according to it. And that's the, that's the condition, right? We have to live as if we know for a fact that God exists. If such a great truth is within our hearts, in our minds, surely our body will move. Surely our thinking will evolve. Surely our purpose, uh, drive, motivations, influences in life will adjust to that fact 
if that fact is so great and is indeed true to us. Right? That's the conviction part, right? You're right, Esther is about conviction. It's about conviction in a time of trouble, conviction in times of challenging, uh, challenging tests in our lives. I don't know if we'll ever experience something like potential genocide. I hope that in our lifetime we don't experience anything even remotely close to that kind of terrible circumstance. But as we have talked about many times throughout this study, trouble will find us. If not, we will find trouble (laughs) ourselves. Uh, Trouble changes, transitions in our lives. It is a constant. It is a universal truth. The question remains then, if, if these are things that we cannot control, obviously Esther did not ask to be put into the situation. Mordecai did not ask to be put into the situation. When he refused to bow down to Haman, he did not imagine a genocide being, being the consequence of his conviction. They didn't ask to be in this situation, and yet they were put into the situation nevertheless they were not in control, right? Most times, if not all the time, we are not in our control. We are not in control of the life that is happening around us. But we are always in control of, and this is something I mentioned with the story of Joseph, we are always in control of what we do, what we think, how we act, how we we hold ourselves, what identity we have? What do we identify with? The people that we decide to interact, interact with, the, the things that we decide to do with people, things that are around us, how to digest our surroundings, our environments, our circumstances, situations, and mash all of that together into a salad bowl <laughs> and, and, and think about what, what kind of mixture is my life, and what am I going to do with it? And I think that's the lesson that Esther is trying to teach. And in terms of chapter 8, I think it's such a, it's very intentional. I think it's very intentional. And I think it's very telling that the last verse of this entire narrative, it talks about Mordecai rising up in power and how he uses it. He has given the circumstance, right? And he has given this power. How does he use it? He uses it for righteousness. He uses it for justice, right? Uh, seeking the welfare of his people, right? And speaking peace. Right? These are, I mean, this is textbook definition of what God's justice, how it is defined in the Old Testament and consequently in the New Testament, right? Taking care of the marginalized of his society, the widows and the orphans, visiting them, taking care of them, being advocates for people who can't speak for themselves, not taking advantage or exploiting the weak, but being their champion. Right? We're not second in power in the United States. I don't think anyone of us is in this room. Nor do we have great power to boast, politically or socially or whatever. I don't know, maybe you're wealthy. Who knows? But whatever your circumstance is, it doesn't matter. The one thing that matters 
is how we reflect the truth that is God exists. Are we going to reflect it well and live a life that is true to that conviction? Or are we going to make the, even the little small choices that we think are insignificant, are we going to cut corners in those things that affect our character and integrity? What are we going to do? That's the question that I think Esther is asking. Yeah, Esther is about the, the Purim, right, the feast coming into existence. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the narrative. But what's more important for us to get out of Esther is the fact that it calls us to a life that is righteous, that calls us to a life that makes choices that are reflective of who God is, regardless of what's happening regardless of our circumstances. And the question is, are we doing that? When we do that, doors open, like in Esther, or the story of Joseph, or with any other biblical heroes that we read of in the Bible. When we make choices that reflect God's nature, that are true to his existence and his calling for us, doors open. Opportunities come. And that gives us more room to grow and to do good works in his name. I don't know how much time we have left. It's 11.24. I think we're about to get out. But any, any comments, any questions, anything about Esther? Questions? Complaints? Yes. <laughs> You're right. Um, yeah, Mordecai does play a, a big part in in Esther, but uh, perhaps the the moment, the most crucial, pivotal moment in Esther that defines the narrative is in chapter four when Esther decides, "I will do this." In despite the danger that I'm putting myself in, right? If I die, I die. Maybe that's why, you know, it was more focused in terms of the title <laughs> with, with Esther. But you're right, they, they all play a very major role in the development of the narrative.